let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word, uh, this, uh, your word, the 66 books of the Bible which are inspired uh, by you, which are given to you through us, through the writers like John of the, of the Bible. Uh, it is also um, inspired and it's also inerrant. It will never be proven wrong. It's infallible. What it says is true, is always true. And so, Lord, this morning we pray as we come to this word, uh, we would be transformed. And, Lord, I also ask that you would speak through this broken vessel this morning because nobody came here to hear Russell. They came to hear from you. And so um, help me to be your vessel this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so my kids uh, have been into the Harry Potter stories. And I, I know um, for a lot of Christians that's evil and you're not supposed to do that, whatever. But actually, they're fantastic stories. And, and one part about Harry I love, and I think all of us love a character like Harry because we sometimes can see ourselves in a guy like Harry. But if you remember, Harry, um, uh, is, uh, his parents uh, have died and he's left to live with his aunt and evil uncle and a fat cousin who's uh, selfish and uh, mean. And, and Harry li- is, is just lives in this life of, of, of oppression and maybe even abuse and has to live in a cupboard under some stairs. And it's a pretty rough story. It's a bad story. And then all of a sudden, one day, a letter comes. Do y'all remember this part of the story? Maybe you don't. And his evil uncle does not want him to have this letter, so another comes. And then another, and another, and another. And by the end of it all, thousands of letters fill the house, and they have to leave. And they flee because, in fear of what's going on here. And his uncle just does not want him to get this letter. And they flee, and they, they stay in this oceanside house. And in the middle of the night, a giant kicks down the door. This giant's a big hairy guy named Hagrid. You know what I'm talking about? And Hagrid says, Harry, you know, I'm going to take you to Hogwarts School of Magic. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, Harry, don't you know? You're a wizard. And probably a darn good one at that too. And Harry says, I'm just Harry. And Harry says, well, just Harry, you need to know you're greater than that. And your parents were too. And, and what happens there? All of a sudden, Harry, whose story has been one of just orphanhood and abuse to, of this family, uh, is now changed. Harry takes a new story. Right? And it turns out he's not just any wizard, but he's a famous wizard and so on. And it goes on and the story continues. And that is very much what we have been talking about. We, if, you're, if you have believed and received Jesus Christ, you are now in a new story. The old story about you is no longer true. Or the story that the world wants you to take on is not true of you. You have taken on a surpassing story. And that's what we've seen. Uh, We've seen that we, that story is powerful and that we are are story-formed people. We are hardwired for story. It's what drives us. It's what connects the dots in our lives. It's what makes us who we are. 
And we all have stories. And, and, and if you're a young person and you're, uh, you know, especially if you're in those teenage years, you don't maybe realize this, but in this part of your life, you are starting to put to, try to put together the pieces where I, where I grew up, who my friends are, who my parents are, what, uh, what has happened to me, what is happening to me now, what is going to happen to me. You're trying to put those pieces into a story. And, the, and we said, though, there's the danger here is that there is a battle for that story. There's, there's competing nemesis narratives, ner- stories out there, evil stories that want to reshape the way you think about yourself. And they, sometimes they seem really positive. That, oh, if, if you just do well in school and you go to college and you get married and you do all the right things, then you will find complete joy. Guess what? That is a lie. And you, if you don't meet up to that standard, you feel like crap. And if you meet that standard and one day you get there, people do it all the time and they say, oh no, this isn't what it was all supposed to be. It wasn't what it was promised to be. So there's these nemesis narratives that seek to choke out the truth of the surpassing narrative. Okay, and so here's the thing, like the gospel and the story that uh, John is giving us here is not just any story. It is a surpassing story it is it is the the best possible story ever you know and 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 i think christians miss this we've missed that the idea that our story is better and if we would just tell this story the way it should be told then people would recognize that but i don't think we do for example the the is it kenny chesney y'all heard the song you know everybody wants to go to heaven but just not right now. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody wants to go to heaven. I just don't want to go now. Can I wait a little while? And, and it shows them dancing and partying and having a great time. Saying, hey, it's cool here. I mean, that heaven stuff sounds kind of... I mean, it's better than the opposite. It's better than going to hell, right? So, so let me do what I need to do to punch my get-out-of-hell you know, card, my fire insurance card. So that I don't have to go bad place, but, so in heaven, but I don't want to go there. I mean, I'd rather stay here as long as I can. Because, you know, floating around clouds with like little, you know, you know baby, baby with wings and, you know, all that. St- I mean, it sounds like, you know, a bunch of old people with gray hair and organs. I mean, that just sounds horrible, doesn't it? I mean, that's the kind of picture we have given the gospel and the hope that we have. Well, let me tell you that the gospel gives us such a surpassing story that that is so untrue that there is such a glory waiting for us that people might want to start saying, I would rather have that now. Um, there was a, um, a professor at Covenant College. His name was Henry Cromondon. And he was really tall, kind of a loud, goofy guy. They called him the uh, seven-foot Dutchman. Um, anyway, but he was on an airplane to going to uh, Uganda, and it was hijacked by a Nigerian terrorist. And, um, uh, and actually, the two guys he was with uh, that I knew from Sumter, South Carolina, actually saved the plane that day. But um, when those terrorists went into that cockpit, they, they jumped on the pilot, and the pilot hit the stick downward. And the plane dropped 10,000 feet in about two seconds. And Henry Cromondon said, in that moment... He was like, "Woo! here I come, Jesus. <laughs> That's what he said. He's like, I'm coming home. He was like, I, I can't wait. And he meant it. 
He was like, it was a good, because they had tried to get him to switch seats because he's a big guy, you know, and he, he was down in coach. And the two guys that ended up saving the plane were up in uh, first class. And um, he said, it was a good thing I wasn't up there because I wouldn't have tried to save us. I'm like, let's go. But Gifford and Clark actually wrestled that guy and saved the plane. Anyway, it was all over the news for a long time. So, we have a surpassing story. And so here, here's the question. What is that story? What is that surpassing story? And, and John starts it out here. See, behold, he says this word, this word see here doesn't even close to come to the word that he's really using here. Uh, and he's using the Greek equivalent to the word hineni, which is behold, look, see, check this out. See what love the Father and what kind, he uses the word, what kind, what kind of love the Father has for us. He's saying, I'm, I want you to see, in, I'm going to open, I'm going to crack the door. I want you to see into this and, and see a picture of a surpassing story, a greater story. A story which people aren't going to sing, I want to go to heaven someday, but not, just not today. So what, what is John talking about here? What does this new story mean for us if we are in this new story what does it mean and that's where john is going to begin to jump in and he's been talking about the need to have a new story and how there's these nemesis narratives but what does it mean for us okay and so the the the, the story tells us that the love of the father confers to us first of all a positional reality a transforming relationship and a resulting change that's what we're going to see in this passage. So first of all, we're going to see positional reality that we get. Um, look at me in verses uh, uh, 1 through, look at me in verses 1 through 2. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. So this is probably the most amazing truth that the Bible teaches us is that we don't just become a part of a religious sect when we become Christians. We don't just start a, a new philosophy of life, but that we are actually given uh, allowed, accepted, or conferred to be the children of God. No other religion in the world does that. No other faith in the world says that you, not only can you like, know God, not only can you follow God or do, do the God thing, but you can know Him as a, as a father. It is an, and I know if you've been a Christian a long time, you've heard that over and over and over again. And maybe it's old hat. Maybe it's just something really commonplace. But if you're in another religion, another part of the world, let me tell you, it is unheard of. It is amazing truth here. Okay, but here's the thing. We've got to be careful because what, what, what John is talking about here is not just kind of like a, a general ownership or interest in us. So, you know, because I've heard this throughout... I've heard this over and over again, which people would say, is that, I mean, we're all God's children. And that's true. Like, if God create, I mean, the people that God created, in some sense, are His children, right? Like, in that way, we're all kind of His children. 
But, and, but I don't know, I don't think that's what he's talking about here or Paul or with these other places. He's talking about something deeper, more meaningful. So in other words, so like for example, let's, let's use Steve Jobs. We talked about him not too long ago. Let's talk about Steve Jobs who uh, one, a friend of mine dressed up as recently. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Steve Jobs created the iPhone. And so in some sense... We could say the iPhone is his baby, right? It's, it's like his child almost. You know, so, any, so, any, so you've created something, and, and you, you take ownership and interest in it, and you, you want to, you know, there's, there's a sense of love for it in some way, right? And I think in that sense, if you've been created by God, certainly God loves his creation. He, he loves what he's created or whatever. But let me tell you, the iPhone doesn't compare to Steve Jobs' actual children. It's not the same. And that's what we're getting. That's the difference we're getting at here. Is that not only are we created by God and he has some kind of general ownership and interest in us. But no, rather, he invites us into a relationship with him. And so the biblical picture of adoption is so much more profound than just this general idea that we are asked to be. And so, in other words, so we are adopted and we are given a seat at the table just like uh, his son Jesus. And so, here's the thing though. You've got to realize that this is not just something we attempt to get to. That we try for. Adoption in the Bible, just like adoption in the world, is a legal reality when we were in Romans 8 we saw this it is it's not just something that you just oh that's a nice little benefit no it it is a positional legal reality so for example John tells us in uh, John chapter 1 verse 12 he says but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. The right. And so when you confer adoption to somebody, it, it becomes a legal reality for them. So for example, I've used this illustration before, but we adopted our oldest son, Ashton. And the day we went to the court, the, you know, we signed papers, and the, the, the judge literally said, do you realize what you're doing? I was like, yes. He's like, Ashton, from this point forward, will legally be your son. And as long as he's underage, it's your care to care for him, and he'll, he will inherit what you have. My vast coffers of wealth will go to him, and so on. But here's the thing. So at that moment, when the, we signed the papers, the judge whatever did his gavel whatever they do it was conferred on him he was now my son but and here's the thing it's not something he tried to do it's not something he earned it's not something that it was something that was given to him and so it's not something that he it was subject to his feelings or his performance and you see it here look look at the language here it says that we would be called. 
children of God. And that word called isn't just a name. It's, it's the idea of conference, to give that away, to be named, to be declared children of God. And then he says, uh, he says, behold, verse 2, we are God's children now. It is done. It is a positional reality. Okay, so here's the thing. Have you ever heard anybody ever say um, something like, you know, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm, I'm trying to be a good son of God or whatever. And, you know, and so and there's this idea that if, okay, if I had a bad week, I was a jerk to my boss, I was, you know, gossiping or, you know, I looked at that stuff on the internet or whatever it might be, then there's a sense of today... I'm not really a son of God. Let's go back to my son Ashton. There was many a day he didn't really feel like my son or even really wanted to be. It didn't matter. The reality is, if you are, you are. If you're not, you're not. We're going to get into this, so then there's a good question of how do you know if I am or I'm not, right? And he's going to show us some of that reality. But we've already seen what it takes to step in to this new reality. If, uh, to all who received him and believed in his name. And so I, I had a conversation recently um, with Amanda. And, you know, she, she was struggling with her, you know, the battle of sin. And she's just like, you know, I'm just really tired of this. I'm tired of me or whatever. She says, Sometimes I, I don't feel like a Christian. And I was like, I, I know what you mean. But here's the reality. You wouldn't even care to ask the question if something hadn't already changed. But we receive this by believing and trusting in Him. But it's more than, than so it's positional reality, but it's also a relational reality. So if you think about, it's a relational, positional reality. So you think about, remember the old story, um, Orphan Annie? There's, I think, a modern take on it recently. It was actually pretty good. But it's the same, same story, right? Orphan Annie, uh, who knows where her parents are. She's left in an orphanage, and all she has of her parents is this, like, half of a locket. It's the only evidence that she even ever had at parents. And one day, a billionaire uh, wanted to do a photo op, uh, you know, get some public, good publicity, because he's not a very well-liked guy. Remember, big, was Daddy Warbuck? Warbucks? And so they, and, and while he was there, they invited Annie, they chose her, and they invited her to his home, and while she was there, she began, and she, she began, to, he, the, the Warbucks began to have an affection for her, and actually began to love her, and, it, and at one point decides, I want to adopt you, Annie. He tells Annie, I want to adopt you, and Annie says, no, because I have other parents, they're out there somewhere. And so, Daddy Warbucks, you know, puts it in the paper or whatever that, you know, they're looking at a $50,000 reward. Anybody who can help us find our parents. Well, there was a couple of con artists, remember? A story, a couple of con artists want to get in on this $50,000 action, and they pose to be her parents. And they make a deal with the orphanage lady to get the other half of that locket. And they try to trick her. All right? But guess what happens? She realizes that Warbucks is her truest dad. 
He's her truest parent, her truest father. And he's inviting her in, not just to his inheritance, not just a position. He invites her in, uh, in relationship, to be his daughter. And that's what we see here. That's why John, he's like amazed. Behold what love the Father has for us. It's amazing. And it's a positional reality. Okay? So practically, it means that we can rest in this new position, in this new relationship. And as a matter of fact, it's in resting in that relationship. This is a side note here. But resting in that relationship is, is, is really the key to that relationship. So in other words, being a good Christian, being a good follower of Jesus, a good son or daughter of God, doesn't mean... Um, it doesn't mean being a better person or more virtuous, more disciplined or more holy somehow. As a matter of fact, to be the best son or daughter of God is to learn to rest in that relationship. And what does that mean? It's what Paul tells us in Romans 8, remember? He says, he says we are no longer have a spirit of slavery to fear, but we have a spirit of adoption whereby we do what? We cry. That's what we do. That's what babies do. They do. That's what babies do best, don't they? I mean, they are designed as amazing criers. They cry so well that any human being, as a matter of fact, any animal, dogs, our dog, when we watch our grandson Liam now, he starts crying. Guess who starts crying too? The dog. Why? Because they're great at it. They're good at it. Because you hear that and you want it to stop. It's horrible. It, sound, it just drives you to want to help. And that's what we're called to do. We're to cry, to cry. To cry. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in, in the Gospels, he tells us, in, he gives a couple of parables, that, that our prayer is just to be annoying persistence. Because of a, a, a woman whose son is in jail, she just bugs the crap out of a judge. Until he finally really relents. The word he, so he finally just get, relents. And that's how we're to pray to God. That's a, it's remarkable, isn't it? So we rest as sons and daughters. And our MO is to cry out. All right, so it's a positional reality. But in that, it's also, I kind of mentioned this a little bit, it was, it's a transforming relationship. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. He says, um, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be like has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so, what John is talking about here is really, it's the climax. It's the grand crescendo. It is the very thing that Jesus came to earth to do, which was be that one day he would return, make all things new. And, and, and with that, when we would, he would appear in front of us, we would be transformed into him, into his image, what we see here. 
This is an eschatological truth. That's a big word. It means end times. So this is an end time truth. He says that one day when Jesus returns, we are going to come face to face with him. And when we do, we are going to be trans- miraculously transformed. Now, I don't know exactly what all that means. Okay? Um, you know, but, you know, as you get older, your knees are hurting, your back hurts. You're thinking, man, I hope it's to get a better one of these things. You know, I, I'm, my glasses now, if you'll see me. I have to do this all the time now because my eyes don't work like they used to. So it was like one thing, you know, when I was, you know, I think I was in my early 20s. I had to like, you know, I couldn't see signs far away, so I had to get these. Right. And now these don't do it because anything too close with these on, I can't see. So I'm like doing this number, you know, it's aggravating. And I almost dropped my glasses in the toilet the other day because of it. I'm like, God, give me new eyes, you know, at least. Anyway. So, but there's going to be this future transformation that's going to occur. And as a matter of fact, throughout history, this particular passage has been a, a teaching of the church that goes back to the very beginnings. It's called, what's, uh, it's called the beatific vision. Okay? In other words, it's the, uh, the beautiful vision. That's what that means. Or some would say the visio dei, the vision of God. And, and it's been, a, it's been a, a, really a center point of not... So like a lot of uh, uh, modern-day Protestants kind of avoid that language, that beatific vision, because that sounds really Catholic. And we don't like Catholic stuff. But no, it's, I mean, it's, it's at the heart of even the great reformers. John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Owens. They actually put the beatific vision at the heart and the core of their theology which is that God is so glorious, so good, so beautiful, to even to, be, to actually behold Him is to be transformed. Now, we get that idea. We understand because we see it all the time. I mean, look at your kids or your kid. Recognize what you're doing because what do you do? When you see something you like, what do you do? You emulate it. You copy it. Right? So my kids, it's Fortnite. You know, they're doing the, the dances, um, or it's um, uh, Harry Potter. You know, they, they dress like Halloween. Kids love. Why? Because they're emulating something they love. And they run around with sticks that they found as wands or whatever. Or yesterday, uh, my sons were sitting, and we were watching the Georgia Bulldogs clinch the East for the SEC championship. We're like, yes, right? And they're outside. Hey, what do they do? Right away, ran outside, and they're throwing the ball, and they're getting touchdowns, and they're emulating what they love. And we do the same. And so this theological idea is that one day, Jesus is going to return, and we are going to see him as he is and be transformed. Now, there's a problem now because we don't see him in completeness. We don't see him fully. So if you see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter, thir- excuse me, chapter 13, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Oh, sorry, is that the wrong one? Nope, sorry guys. Yes, there it is. Okay, he says, this is Paul. He says, For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He says, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he's saying it now, we see 
Jesus, but we only see him dimly. We only see him by faith. We only see him in his word, but we do see him. But it's, it's dimly as if in a mirror now, or a, or a looking glass or whatever. But if, if you go back and you really look into the language here, what Paul is saying is he's probably referring to the best thing they had as a mirror was basically a dark glass. Maybe, maybe the equivalent would be like a dark beer bottle glass. And, and so if you can imagine the, the, the idea here is that we, we only see a little bit. I mean, a shadow of the glory of who Jesus is. And one day, we, when we see him, we're going to see him in all of his beauty, all of his glory, all of what he is. And because of that, we are going to be transformed. Um, and so, here's the thing, though. This vision of Jesus is so amazing, so beautiful, so glorious, that even now, to even want it, to even want that vision is transforming. Did you hear that? So think about that. If, if something is so amazing, so glorious, so joyous, that even to want it now can transform your life, it must be something amazing. Um... And how do I know that? Because he says it here. Look in, with me in verse 3. Um, he says, and, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see that? So just merely hope in this beatific vision is to be transforming. How is that possible? How can just wanting to be trans or to see this vision of Jesus, how and hoping in this eventual transformation, how could that possibly transform us now, or begin to purify us and change us now, or, and, or to begin to shape our stories, as he's talked about? Okay, so this vision is so astounding that even to want it, to hope in it, begins to purify the soul. All right. So how does that happen? We, we get a little glimpse, Psalm 17, he says, I think this is it here, nope, where am I at, find it for me, okay, uh, Psalm 17, 15, he says, this is the psalmist David, he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So David is saying, if I would see God face to face, and, and, we, and we, we're saying that one day we will, that in just seeing that, that we will be satisfied with your likeness. And what he's getting at here is that, um, that there is something, because Jesus, here's the thing, because Jesus represents everything that is beautiful, glorious, and even satisfying. To, to hope in him and to one day see him is to be ultimately transforming. Because we told in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that Jesus himself is the, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in other words, Jesus 
in Jesus, we have everything we've ever wanted. We have everything we've ever desired. Everything we've hoped for, even in this world, it is ultimately going to be found and realized in Jesus himself. Okay? And this will have a present effect in our lives when we realize that every longing, every joy, every passion that we are seeking, in fact, will find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Does that make sense? So let's, let's, let me help you all with this, okay? okay. Let, you, let's say you go outside, and, and it's cloudy now, but you go outside one day, and it's just beautiful sunset, and you're like, oh, that's amazing, and you try to take a picture of it, you're done that? You picture of it, and you look at it later, you think, Ugh. I mean, I, I went, I, one time, uh, hiked up to St. Mary's Peak in, in Montana, 10,000 feet, and, 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 and 360 degrees around you is the most beautiful snow-capped mountains you can imagine. It is overwhelming. I was just like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm at the doorstep of God. And I'm looking around, and I'm just so amazed. So this was back before iPhones. This is, I had like camera with film in it, you know what I mean? So I, I took the pictures. Yeah, I was like taking as many as I could as I went around. And I'm like taking as many photos as I can because I want to get it. And I thought maybe I'll, just, I'll piece them all together on my wall or something because I want to take this. I want to hold it. I want to hang, hang on to this moment. So you know, I had to wait. Remember, this is back in the day when you had film, and you had to wait. You had to like go home, you know, pull the little little canister of film out of the camera y'all were like what is he talking about and and you, and you had to go to like this store like Walgreens put it in a little bag hand it to them and then several days later go back to the store pick up a package with your photos right I mean talk about delayed gratification now it's like selfie selfie boop, boop, right and um it's super instant. You can post it to the world on a million different platforms. But so I get these pictures home. I lay them out, and it was like wah wah wah. It was just like ugh. Like did I remember that right? Like I mean, I tried to piece something. It didn't help because you can't. Ca- I, I couldn't capture it. And that, but in that moment, it was this moment of joy. And that just a, a, a little picture. So it, you know you. That, that moment of joy and, and, and that moment of excitement and, and, and you think back or you think back on it and then we get what we call nostalgia which is joy in reverse a longing for joy in reverse right think, oh back in the good old days if I could only go back to 1982 right if coach had only let me in kind of thing um, you know that kind of that's, that, that, is a, that is a longing it is a longing for joy you know, we're looking for the right relationship, the perfect relationship, or the, or the health in our life, or, the, or the, the right car, or the pleasure, whatever it is in this life. Only, that is just a glimpse of what Jesus ultimately offers us. C.S. Lewis, as a matter of fact, um, was keen to point out that, that the problem with our world isn't that there's too much pleasure going around, it's that there is not far too little joy going around we are far we are far too easily caught up in little glimmers of, of real joy and pleasure we we're we, as he put it we're like little kids this is his words you know in the slums 
playing in the mud, making mud pies, thinking that is awesome. When they, they have no idea that they could be on holiday at the beach. See the difference? So here we are making our little mud pies. We're thinking, oh, this is awesome. This is great. If I only had this, if I could only get back to then, if I could only achieve that, if I could only be with that person, if I could only get that possession, if I could only get out of debt, then I could be really happy. And it's like we're making our mud pies. And, and, and Jesus says, I'm a holiday at the beach. I'm the ultimate joy that you could have. And so, how, do, so how does that ch- change us? How does that begin to uh, transform us now? Okay? Because we are now being purified. Here's why. We are being purified by a greater hope. We hope in a joy that surpasses all the joys of this world. It lifts us up out of the mire. It pulls our chin out of the water. So that we can see the horizon. And so then when, we get into the center, but when, when the job fails you, when, when your spouse fails you, when, when the money runs out, when all these things that we're seeking and striving for fail us, we are not dis- we're not destroyed anymore. And we begin to be purified by a greater joy and a greater hope. And that's what happens. So lastly... And I promise, even though this is like a whole bunch of verses, I promise. But there's a resulting change. There's a change that occurs in our lives when we begin to tie our hopes in this beatific vision. Um, now, notice in verse 4, John here just seems to jump tracks. Have y'all noticed that? He's like, see this love of Father? He's called us to be children. And one day, we're going to see this amazing, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to be radically transformed. And then in verse 4, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Like, John, what? Did you like take a nap before you went from verse 3 to verse 4? What is going on? He's like jumping serious tracks here, it seems like, right? No. He's saying if, if, if we are transformed, so if we are transformed, something's going to happen. And, and so he's going to lay that out here. So what you need to note about this section here, because if you started with verse 4, or you just forgot verses 1 through 3, you've got a problem. Okay, but here's the thing. Verse 4 through the end of this chapter, it doesn't start with that. You follow what I'm saying? This section follows verses 1 through 3. And that is absolutely crucial. Okay? So, because if you start with verse 4 and you start reading through this, the idea then is, okay, if, I, if I'm a good person, I, and I don't sin, if I'm righteous, and I love people really well, then, then God will love me. Then I can be his son. Then I will get there. That's what, most, that's what a lot of people do. We take this chapter and flip it on its head. And let me tell you, you get into this chapter, and you start from verse 4, and you start getting through here, let me tell you, you're like, oh, I'm not good at this. Because he's talking about those who do righteousness are righteous. And, and, and those who, you know, loving your brother. If you see your brother in need, and you don't help him, you're of the devil. I mean, it gets rough. It's a rough cha- passage here. But here, I, I want you all to see, the, there's a key verse in this passage. Okay? 
and it's and it and it it's, a, it's also a key word that you're going to see you see over and over in verse ten. He says this: "By this there," and it's pretty common actually in Hebrew language to to kind of move to the middle of a passage. He's saying, "Is this is not the means of how you become a, a child of God and not a child of the devil? It's not the process or the way you do it." It's the evidence. You see this word evidence? He repeats this word evidence. And ev- he repeats this idea that, that, if, that it's not the means to becoming a child of God. It's actually the evidence of a change that will occur if you are a child of God. You follow me now? Makes a big difference here. Okay? And so... John is saying that these life changes that he's talking about here will be evidence that we are children and that we are being transformed. So it is evidence, not the means or method. John is naturally proceeding out of the two truths we have seen. And so in other words, when we are grounded in the reality that we are in fact God's sons and daughters and we rest our hope and, and, and the joy and the pleasure that Jesus and Jesus alone will give us. We rest in that, in that story. The, the present story, we are already children of God. The future story, that God is moving us to a glorious future where all the joy and beauty and splendor we can imagine. That's the word glory. We will be like Him. We hope in that we will begin to purify ourselves. And, and these things will begin to happen. We will no longer make a practice of sinning. We will and will love another. And so he, he gives us two ways, basically, that this will happen. First of all, righteousness. We will begin to be, be, do righteous things. Why? Well, think about why you do unrighteous things. What is sin? Sin is, is, is a couple of things, right? It's, it's saying God... I don't need you or want you. I'm going to get what I need out of this world, this world and I'm going to fight for it. Okay? So in that way, we turn against God. We rebel against Him. Instead of seeking Him, remember the help? Crying out to Him and saying, God, I, I, would you provide what I need today? And trusting and relying and obeying Him. And also trusting His Word, saying, uh, I, okay, I know what's best for me. You, I, I mean, I don't know what's best for me. You do. So that, that, that side of it changes. And then on the flip side, when we are fighting for joy in the things of this world, guess what? It is inevitable we are going to fight for joy and, and scratch and claw for the, the things that we want at the expense of others. This is how it works. So if I want joy, I'm going to fight for it. I'm gonna, it's going to probably be at the expense of others. And we, that's what it is. That's what happens. And so it's going to be inevitable... The two things that Jesus tells us is to fulfill the laws that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, soul, and strength, right? And that we would love our, our neighbor as ourselves. And so, when our hopes are shaped and changed by these two realities that we are sons of God, sons and daughters of God, and that He is our ultimate joy, and that no matter what joy we achieve in this world, it's only a glimmer of Him. But one day, all the joy, all the happiness, all the peace. And so we, it begins to cause us to transcend. And so then we can start saying, you know, I can do without today. 
I don't need that new car because I see there's people in need. I can, I can become a generous person because I'm no longer clinging to and fighting for what I need and what I think I want. I can begin to see, oh, wait, you know what? It can wait. There's a joy and a, and a, and a hope way beyond the, the mud pies of this life. And so we're able to be righteous and we're able to love. We're able to do all that this passage is about. And then, so then you start to see the evidence of what it means to be a son or daughter of God. And so, if, if you're an unbeliever, let me just tell you right now. If you, if, and, and I'm assuming a lot of you in here are, but I can never assume beyond what I really know. And I, some of you in here may have never said, I believe in him, I receive him. Let me say, that is an open invitation. And it is a free gift. If you would just believe and receive him, you would have, here's the word, the right to be a child of God. To step into a positional reality that is conferred to you. It is not earned. And then that, but then also that you would step into a new story. A new story that has its, at its climax, glory. And so for the rest of us, though, are you living in these realities? Are you living in the reality, the positional reality, that you are in fact a child of God? A loved child of God. Okay, it's not, you can't earn it. It doesn't matter how you feel how this week, how, how well you've done and performed. It doesn't matter where you are in your walk. It is true of you, and it never changes. And then let me ask you this, are you hoping and looking to that beatific vision? Are you looking through the glass dimly now so that one day, and that hope, it will be as you purify, you will one day, we will one day see him and not be ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for...